Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you. If you have a Bible, you could turn to the 26th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts 26. We're getting uh, extremely close to the end of our series in Acts. I'm so grateful that you came today. I know that Brian has uh, said welcome, Tim probably as well, and, and Scott mentioned it. But let me just say thank you so much. I know that uh, for many of you, uh, today represents time with family. It represents maybe a huge deep breath. You're done with school. Uh, some of you even considered or have graduated in the last uh, week or so. And I'm just thankful. I'm very thankful that you've taken up time this morning to be in worship with us. It's a gift. I don't want to ever stop appreciating that. Uh, there's no assumptions here, um, but it is a, it's, a massive, uh, it's a massive blessing uh, to me personally to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. Thanks for wanting to come and to be aligned under the word of God to hear from, uh, from him. We are going to read the 26th chapter of Acts in just a moment. I want to orient you a little bit about where we're at. When we last left Paul, he was in the midst of a string, a series actually of trials that he's in the midst of defending his faith. He has been brought before the rulers of the day, uh, some religious, the religious zealots of the temple, as well as the Roman Empire who are hearing him defend his way of life, the preaching that he is doing, and we have seen now two of basically what are three consecutive defenses that Paul makes of his life. What we're not going to read, but what has taken place at the end of chapter 25 is basically just a handoff. There's been two handoffs, one from Felix to Festus, when Felix left that post, and then now from Festus, things have been escalated up to King Agrippa. So Agrippa is uh, from a grisly, grisly history of kings in, in Jerusalem. In fact, if you read through the New Testament and you want to see any kind of persecution or terrible things that have happened uh, in God's story, somewhere down the line, like this is Agrippa's family tree. His family reunion is full of people who caused harm to the cause of God. You might recall his, I think it would be his great-great-grandfather, Herod, who enacted one of the most widespread public infanticides, basically, of children under the age of two. He heard Jesus was going to come and be king. Herod said, kill them all. Jesus escapes. His son, the next Herod, it's not a lot of creativity in naming, apparently. Um, this is what kings do, though. If you're a king, you get, you get to roll like that. You hand off your name. The next Herod, right, is the one who has the disagreement with John the Baptist. John the Baptist has the audacity to tell him, you should not have your brother's wife. Remember the boldness of his preaching and it cost him his head. This is that Herod. And then we've also seen this Agrippa's father in Acts chapter 12, where it says that he brought great persecution against the Christians that were in Jerusalem and in surrounding areas. So this handoff from Paul to Agrippa is not, it's not a, a time for him to sort of breathe deeply and say, oh, I'm, I made it. He is unsure of his future and he is continuing to go to the wall for in, I love Festus' own words in Acts 25, 19, he says that Paul, the dispute is about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserts to be alive. This is a matter of the resurrection. Whether Jesus Christ was dead and then was raised from the dead was the issue of preaching for the early church. It was not a minor doctrine. It was, on, it was the doctrine on which everything stood. It's what they witnessed. It's what they proclaimed. It made all of the difference. It's why we must hold on to the supernatural aspects of Christianity. There's entire denominations, right, that want to distance themselves, to be a bit more modern, to say, oh, come on now, we don't believe in zombies and tales of resurrection. If we were to say that sort of thing in the early church, they would have lost the entirety of the power of their message. Paul did not go before Roman empires. The martyrs did not shed their blood over a theoretical raising of Jesus spiritually in their hearts or any other sentimentality. This was a historical fact. It's what Paul was preaching and Festus realizes it. He doesn't come and say, well, they just have some confusion over rights of the law. 
No, he says what it is. Here's the deal. Paul believes a dead man is alive and the rest of these people don't. So that's setting the scene. And we're jumping in now to Paul before Agrippa. I'm going to read just the first eight verses of Acts chapter 26 and then pause. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to read along and to dive in. Again and again and again and again, I will say, of course I want to be persuasive. I want to be winsome. I want to plant seeds of question and wrestling and delight in Jesus Christ in you. Of course, I want all those things. But more than that, I want your hunger, your desire to run to the word of God for yourself to be increased. Not only to give you food, but to give you an appetite. That's what we're after this morning. So consider with me scripture. This is the 26th chapter, book of Acts. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Let's pause there and pray. Father, you are kind and gracious. You are loving. You've given us such a clear picture of who you are in all of creation. All of nature speaks, lauds you brings glory to who you are. You are creator, almighty. Before the beginning, you were. And more than that, more than the voice of creation, you've spoken so clearly in your word. God, we're grateful. Thank you for not being silent. Deliver us from the kind of mundane apathy that can sometimes creep in. We have before us the very words of God. And so I pray that you'd help us. Holy Spirit, come, take from Jesus and give to us. Enlighten our eyes. God, we want to be faithful witnesses like Paul was. Help us to be thoughtful, to consider our age. And you know my desire, God, is to be helpful, so I pray that that would be the case. God, bring the kind of help that comes from you and comes from you alone. We're desperate, we're needy, but we're expectant. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to walk through this particular chapter and point out a couple of things that would hopefully be a help uh, to us as we live in our day and age. One of the things that we're learning from Paul as he continues to preach is that when you have something that is absolutely vital to tell someone— when you have something that's a matter of life and death, when you have something that has been given to you as a commission with divine unction, then it is not enough to simply ask politely one time in one particular way and then say, I guess that didn't work. Paul's entire life is committed to doing everything he can in any way he can to get his message across. He is attempting to get his entire life, he's attempted to get a hearing. He's attempted to get hearing. So we cannot be like my children might be if they want a cookie or something or if they want to eat something they know they're not supposed to. They can't say, muttering under their breath one time in the kitchen, Dad, can I eat a cookie? And then what happens 30 minutes later when we find them all devoured and gone? What do they say? I asked you and you didn't hear me, right? I asked you and you didn't hear. I tried this one time. I muttered sort of, sort of politely and you didn't, you didn't hear. 
To get a hearing about matters of life and death is everything to Paul. He is doing everything he possibly can if he could just be heard about his life, about the experience that he's had with Jesus Christ and what the message of the gospel is. He's longing to get a hearing. And it's something that we need to consider and wonder about in our day. How will we get a hearing? How will we get a hearing? We made the point last week that for many of us, we want to get a hearing by being invited in, by having esteem, by being introduced to the masses as the venerable Dr. Reverend Lance Olam, speaking mysteries and truth of need to our nation, right? That's what we long for. We long for places of esteem, and we think that's the path to our hearing. The question is, will we be faithful when our path to hearing involves trial and mocking and spitting and being kicked out of public debate and dialogue because we're bigoted or because our message is narrow? That's exactly what Paul's experiencing. And yet his entire life is, how can I get a hearing? And so I want to ask a couple of questions for us. I want to ask, in in your life right now, you have the message of the gospel. Paul says at one point that you have been entrusted with treasure, riches in an earthen vessel. You have the message of the gospel. Where is God giving you a hearing? How are you going to get a hearing? And I want you to note how how astounded Paul is the fact that he has a hearing. He's standing before Agrippa. He has no choice. There's been an amazing amount of punishment coming his way. He had to be rescued from death. And yet he still very politely, in verse 3 of Acts chapter 26, stands before Agrippa and says, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I beg you to listen to me patiently. By the Spirit of God, in some sense, that is what we're proclaiming to the world out there. Our very existence, the fact that we have a worship service at all, is a proclamation to the world. I beg you, listen to us patiently. And the reason I say this is because I think for a long time, and in a lot of ways, we presume too much. We presume that we should get a hearing. Rather than pressing through the trials and difficulty of being mocked or being derided, We oftentimes throw small pity parties. Is that still a phrase? A pity party? And spend a lot of time praying or complaining or whining about the fact that we don't have the kind of hearing that we once had. And yet Paul says, this is not an ideal place. And yet he knows this is a big moment. This is something that's a gift. However I possibly can, Agrippa, please listen to me patiently. Have you noticed that this world is not very good at listening? Mother's Day, I'll, I'll, mothers, I'll, I'll give you this one, right? Feel free to nod vociferously. Is that a word? Vociferously. That's a hard word to say. I need some water for that one. We don't listen very well in this world. If you went out and walked right now in, on the campus of Florida State, how many people do you think would be looking at the sky or the surroundings or the ground? And how many people do you think would be looking directly at a phone or a device? A hundred out of a hundred? How many of you over the last five to ten minutes, how many of you over the last five to ten minutes, despite your desire to come and to listen, that's what this whole moment is, it's a listening moment, how many of you have been lost in an unbelievable variety of thoughts and places and aims? right? We have trouble listening. We really do. And yet somehow when we go to proclaim the gospel to people, I really think that we expect and presume, oh, you need to listen to me. This is a very, very busy world. There's a couple thoughts on getting a hearing. We live in a busy world and we need to adjust to that. Not to mention the fact that this is a busy world that is a soundbite world If you cannot express all of what you believe or your worldview in 140 characters or less, we don't have time for this, right? The fact that we live in a busy world should make us desire to ask patience of people and to gain a hearing. This is a very, very scattered place that we live. 
for you to describe to someone, especially someone who is not raised in Christianity and doesn't have all, last week I got to speak to a group of a hundred or so high school students, FCA Bible study leaders. And I described to them the kind of time that it takes to unfold the gospel, to speak Jesus intelligibly into this world has changed. The difference between the world that we encounter now and the world that a lot of us expect it to be is the difference between, this is what I called Christmas morning puzzle time with Reed, and red popsicle puzzle time with Reed. And this is what I mean by that. Most of us believe when we go to speak the gospel to someone that everyone basically has the pieces right in front of them. I basically understand that God exists. I basically understand that humans are endowed with the dignity and the image of God. I basically understand that there is such a thing as truth. I basically know the mechanics of the gospel. Jesus came and he died on the cross. And most of us, when we go to speak Jesus to someone, we think that it's just a matter. This is why I called it Christmas morning puzzle time with Reed. There's nothing I love more than doing a Lego project or a puzzle time right when we purchase that thing. Why? All the pieces are there. <laughs> all the, this is the only time from now until eternity all the pieces will be there, Right? Everyone knows this. This will never happen again. This is the only moment. And so you sit down and everything is there. And really what it is, it's just a matter of bringing to my son's attention the piece that's there and then arranging them in a proper way. It takes very little time. That's not the world that we live in. For a majority of us to get a hearing in preaching the gospel, you're not even on the same puzzle. The pieces are gone. They're scattered. You say to someone, you need to trust Jesus. He forgave your sins. They'll say, what is sin and why are you such a Debbie Downer? It's red popsicle puzzle time with Reed. And this is what I mean by that. When Reed gets a popsicle, he manages to, find, he manages to splash red popsicle juice everywhere in the house. On everything, Right? And what I mean is, is that six months later, if I go to do that same puzzle and I want a hearing with Reed, let's put this together, it's going to take me an hour just to find the pieces. It takes a long time. Listen to me patiently, Paul says. Why? Because you are not putting together a puzzle for people where they have the same worldview as you, where they know what's going on. You might need to take months to describe theism to someone. To describe why it's not insane to believe that there is a God, that there's a spiritual world beyond us. It might take months. We cannot lose patience with people and we must ask patience of them. To describe the entirety of your worldview, of course it makes no sense. Your Christian life makes no sense to people. They're not working on the same puzzle. It might take months and years for you to go and you have to dig underneath the couch and you have to pull out the piece that's ripped in half and has red popsicle sauce on it. This is the world that we live in. It's a busy world. It's scattered. And it's going to take time for us to proclaim who Jesus is. Now, that doesn't mean that God is... He's, not, he's gracious sometimes. And sometimes he puts together the pieces so fast. And we stand back in awe and say, God, look what you have done. But to get a hearing is not a simple thing. I love, I love, love, love that Paul says, I beg if you listen to me patiently. There's no presumption here. There's no whining. I would submit to you that for someone to be interested in you and your story and what you have to say, especially about religious things, is in and of itself a minor miracle in our day and age. It really is. And you sense it, don't you? It's one of the reasons that evangelism is so hard. For someone to actually listen to you over the course of 20, 30 minutes, an hour, talk about religion, it seems like a massive deal because we're all so busy. Hold on, I got to get my kids signed up for AAU. Hold on, I just got to refi my mortgage. Hold on, I just got to get to work. Hold on, I got 19, right? That's the world that we live in. A couple other things about getting a hearing in our world. I want you to think about this. We need to ask people to listen to us patiently. Why? Because we live in a fragile world. Fragile. And I mean that. It is extremely fragile. This is what I mean. We have lost, as a culture, when I say we, we're a part of this, I really believe that we have lost the capacity for disagreement. Have you read some polemics from four or five hundred years ago? 
You know, there's an entire website devoted to the insults of Martin Luther. Did you know this? There's actually a website that scrolls through quotes of Luther insulting his opponents. And it is, it is high comedy. It's one of the, my favorite websites of all time. It's, it's so straightforward, it's unbelievable. You could not, you, he, he basically says, you can't put two thoughts together more than you can, walk in, you can walk two steps ahead of you. Like, that's like the tame one. And other times he calls people things that I can't say out loud in a sermon. Polemics, this idea of we disagree and we disagree vehemently and that is okay and it's not an emotional barrage, and I haven't set off a nuclear bomb, that world is increasingly non-existent for us. Every bit of disagreement is fragile. We have no understanding of one another. By the way, the Luther website, it's just one quote, and then you can press a, a button and it says, insult me again, and you can just press it, and then a new quote pops up. It's like, so... I think that part of this is for a much different reasons. And I know that right now this seems like a sociological uh, study and you came here for like a Bible sermon and you're like, why are you telling me about sociology? I think it's because it matters. I want to apply what it means to get a sermon or to get a hearing for the gospel to us. One of the reasons that we're fragile is because increasingly we have very few friends or colleagues on the opposite side of ideas as us. We are one of the most absolutely bubbleized. Uh, people that the world has ever seen because we can be we've created we've created basically an entire life devoted to the people that we like and the ideas that we like people have written books one guy named Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone talking about this idea of social capital and he basically says that no one hangs out with people they disagree with anymore. Everything has been so heightened and so escalated. So it used to be if you heard someone who you thought was crazy speaking things on the other side of the political aisle, you would listen to them because you just went bowling with them. You were on their bowling team. They lived in your neighborhood. You understood them to be a human with rational thoughts and feelings and experiences. The day and age that we live in is not that day and age. If you speak something that seems even remotely offensive, seems even remotely challenging, seems out of, out of view for someone in what they say, they will immediately write you off. And it's not just that they disagree with you. You are a horrible person. You probably punch infants. You, just, you are just short of a cannibal. I mean, this is the heightened world we live in. If you listen to the rhetoric on any side of a debate, we live in a fragile world. You disagree with my ideas, I will sue you. This is the world we live in. People do not want to engage and debate. It's another reason why we need to say to people, I beg of you, listen to me patiently. And one of the best things that we can offer to other people is our patient ear, to not get uptight about things. The other thing, the reason that getting a hearing is a difficult thing, I promise we're going to get to the Bible. The reason that getting a, diff uh, a hearing is a difficult thing is because the world has never been more public and yet we maintain an absurd commitment to keeping things personal and private. All of the things that matter most are guarded and protected in a vault of mind your own business and everything else is in the public sphere. Have you noticed this? People on social media, you interact with someone, they spend three years sharing all of the most intimate details and thoughts on a subject. You wa I've watched my friends' marriages unravel in horrifying detail on social media. Oh, he think he's going to be like this? No, it isn't. It's going to be like that. Oh, now he's messaging her. What do you think? You know, right? This is everything is public. Except for the moment, so three years, all this minute of detail, and at lunch you get together with them and you say to them, hey, you know, I've really been thinking about your relationship with so-and-so, and have you thought about this? I just, I really feel like you need to consider. And what's the response? How dare you dive into my private life? This is a private, this is, pr mind your own business. People these days don't know how to mind their own business. We live in a complicated world where every thought, every moment, every emotion is broadcast to the world. And yet at the same time, if you ask someone specifics about what do you believe about the afterlife? What do you, what's your background? Were you raised in the church? 
We are all trained to be endlessly public, but also ferociously private. And this is the world that we have to navigate. That's a bonus thought that I don't know how to solve. I just don't. Good luck with that. Like, really. The answer is not to be one of those people who share everything, overshare on social media. I know that. Another reason that getting a hearing is difficult, and we need to ask people, I beg of you, listen to me patiently. You know why? This is just good old-fashioned. It's been this way from the beginning. This is why. Because the world hates this message. It's not just sociological. It's not just because you're not good enough friends. It's not just because they're busy. It's not because we don't know how to disagree. People fundamentally, because of sin, because there is an evil one who, can, who absolutely works to keep people blinded and in darkness, hates this message. You are going to a world, you are going to people who have grown up saying, everything you want to do, you do that. You just do you. You do you. That is the world we live in. And what happens is, you come to them and you say, you are accountable. You are responsible for the life that you're living. There is right and wrong Someone will have a say on whether you do something or whether you don't do it. This message that we preach, the one that Paul preached, has to do with sin. In other words, yes, there are things that you need to, be, need to be actually re- be repented of. And the world hates this message. Fundamentally, what it reminds people of is, we are not God. And I don't know if I need to remind you of this or not, that has never been a popular message. Try to gain a crowd by reminding people over and over again, you are not God, just so you know. The world hates this message. What I'm calling for, this is what I'm calling for at the beginning of this. I'm learning all these things from Paul. And for many of you, you're thinking to yourself like, whoa, well, I'm glad I don't have a Roman government breathing down my neck. Whenever I get pulled in front of the proconsul, I guess I don't know how to apply scripture. The point is this. We need to be relentless and winsome and thoughtful in how we gain a hearing for the gospel. The temptation is going to be rely on methods that worked yesterday, on methods that work today. I think there are a myriad, probably in the thousands of churches, who are dying right now because they've refused. They found a way to get a hearing for the gospel one time in 1962, And they've done nothing but complain that that way doesn't work anymore. We need to be winsome and thoughtful to get a hearing for the gospel. And when I say winsome and thoughtful, I think some of that also means ferocious and faithful because it's going to come in fire and in trial. It really will. We can't believe that God owes us any particular kind of hearing. I think that's the particular way. We are to be faithful with the message. God orchestrates the circumstances for the place and the timing of our hearing. I hope that makes sense. I've never started a sermon with a rant before, but this one seemed like it. Let's look at a couple of things from Paul's life. Once you gain a hearing, once you understand all of that crazy stuff, once you gain a hearing, let's learn from Paul, what does he say beginning in verse 4 of Acts chapter 26? This is a lesson that we ought to learn. He says, my manner of life from my youth. This is something we ought to know and remember very, very clearly. If the first point or the first thought of this sermon was, how do we get a hearing? The second one is to remember that story, your story is a great defense. Story is a defense. He is called to make his defense before King Agrippa. And what does he do? He begins to tell his story. His evangelism, at least in this section of the book of Acts, is not on the intricacies of prophetic vision. He is not, like in Acts chapter 17, bringing up Greek poets and where we live and move and have our being. Instead, he is simply telling his story. And I will say, as complicated as the world is, the one that I just described to you, as complicated as that world is, this is something that we do have going for us because stories are universal. Everyone loves a story. Every story should be told. That's the world that we live in. And we can't, this world cannot help but hear a good story. More than the fact that the love of stories is innate in us, we live in a culture in a day and age where experiences 
are almost paramount. They're, they're paramount to everything. It's not truth. It's what have you experienced? What are you feeling right now? What are you experiencing is the way that you get a hearing in our day and age. And so I love that Paul begins to describe my manner of life from my youth. His time, he brings up in his own nation. He is from Tarsus. Not only in Tarsus, but then down in Jerusalem. He says that his life was well known by all who were there. They must have known him for a long time. And you might think to yourself, well, of course they knew you, Paul. You're the source of riots in the temple. You ever thought about that, that in the years previous to this, that there's probably stories that people are telling about the one time this crazy man came and he had five bald men with him and people tried to murder him and I was there. They barely saved his life. There were riots in the temple because of Paul. Not only that, not only that, but he was also the guy who had been authorized. We find out later he was authorized to kill Christians. His life is really an amazing life. But what he says that's interesting about this is from his youth, from the time that he was a young child, apparently everyone in Jerusalem knew him. There's times when you're reading it and you think that Paul's not being very humble. He says, like, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous beyond all my kinsmen. He was like from the best tribe, had all of this history. He's a brilliant intellect. And you get stories like this and you think to yourself, like, he might have been, he might have been being honest. We've also found out, at least in the chapters, chapters previous to this, that he was a citizen of Rome. He said he was born that way. It means that his father was probably influential, probably had enough money to buy Roman citizenship. He came from an influential family, came from Tarsus to Jerusalem, and studied under the best rabbis that there were. And his life, his story, is what he starts with as his defense. It's not the only time that he tells it. But what he does is he basically puts himself in their context. He puts himself in their context. He says, I know your worldview. I was one of you. I walked in the temple. I've lived in this tension between Jewish and Roman, re- Roman rule. He puts himself in their context through his story. I love verses 6, 7, and 8. He says he stands on trial because of the hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. In other words, he says this is nothing new. The 12 tribes hope to attain this same promise. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 8, almost longingly, pleadingly, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? What Paul is saying is I am merely preaching the hope of Israel, the same hope that has been there from the beginning. He's appealing to not only their knowledge of him, but their knowledge of the faith. The fact that a Messiah would come was not a new idea. The Pharisees, remember, they would get in arguments with the Sadducees about the resurrection. These were the ones that believed, yes, God can raise people from the dead. And there is hope after this life. That is what he is saying. I love this kind of preaching because Paul is basically saying, he's rejecting the idea that he longs to be an innovator. He's not coming to them with new, crazy things that itch ears. He is not longing to be an innovator. 1,500 years later, Martin Luther would be brought in a trial before the religious leaders of the day, called out for heresy, and he would lean back on a very, very, very similar sentiment. Luther would say this, We teach no new thing, but we repeat and establish old things, which the apostles and all godly teachers have taught before us. We teach no new thing. Luther stood before the the authorities, the religious authorities of his day, and basically said the same thing that Paul said. I'm teaching no new thing. This is the hope of our fathers. As a side note, many of us get bored with the old, old things. I think if we're honest, we just get bored with them. We really do. We long for new and innovative things. Can I just say that I hope for so long as we exist, so long as we exist, that we barely say anything new. I really believe that. 
all that needs to be heralded and protected and guarded. We need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what Jude tells us. And there's going to be a longing in so many people to be innovative and new. You come next week and the title of my sermon is A Brand New Gospel. Run. Like, leave. Don't ever come back. If I'm ever starting a blog and and hosting it by saying, like, I've discovered a previously undiscovered nuance of Jesus. Like, just get, just run as far as you possibly can run. We teach no new things. This gospel that's been given to us is the power of God for salvation. It was the power of God for Paul. It's going to be the power of God for us. It's going to be the power of God until Jesus returns. And that is what Paul is saying. I love this defense before the leaders. Go back to the prophets, he says. Go read of the suffering servant in Isaiah. This is the hope that we've longed for for thousands of years. I teach no new thing. That's basically what he says. In his story, he not only places himself in their context, but he also empathizes with their passion. In other words, he says to, the, says to them, I understand why you want to murder me. And that starts in verse 9. Let's read together for the first, next little section. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is an amazing account from Paul himself. It's one of the reasons I think that he can say, I was the chief of sinners. You recall already at the end of Acts chapter 8, when Stephen is martyred, he is stoned to death. It says there is one standing by Saul who gave approval to his execution and his death. This is the kind of person that Saul was. I think the thing that we could learn from this when we're telling people our story is to remember what it's like to doubt. Scripture says so, so clearly, have mercy on those who doubt. Now, some of you have just understood who Jesus is. You've just, you're just wrestling with the truth of who he is. You're just understanding the need to repent and confess your sins. And so it's fresh for you. When you interact with someone and they don't believe and they struggle and they don't want to confess sin, you maybe have this palpable understanding. You can empathize with them. Oh, I see why this is difficult for you. For a lot of us, we need to work harder at this. You've been a Christian since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, right? I've always wanted to say that phrase. Is that a Southern phrase? I don't know what that is. It's the weirdest phrase of all time. Some of you have been a Christian for so long that when you interact with someone who does not understand who God is or what Jesus has done or the fact that sin exists, you are, you're appalled, you're out of your element, even though you're not saying it, everything about us when we interact with people is something to the effect of, I mean, ugh, you are such an idiot. Which is really strange when Brian talks like that, right? We need to empathize with people where they're at. We need to have mercy on those who doubt. Sometimes that means even confessing where you're at. You know it's okay in the midst of evangelism to say to someone if they ask a really, really tough question, Yeah, I totally know what you're saying. That one's hard for me too. Tell your story. Don't leave out the parts where you say, you know what, I had a real intellectual problem with the fact that a man could be dead and come back alive. Tell someone, yeah, you know what, I understand the argument that maybe Christianity is just a crutch emotionally or something. I thought that. I I fought with that. I can see where you're coming from. Sometimes a little empathy goes a long way. And Paul basically says to the people who are trying to murder him, hey, listen, I've been there. Literally. He probably could tell them like tips. He'd be like, hey, when you guys are trying to kill me back there in the temple, you had it all wrong. Like, I, I could, you know what I mean? Empathize with their passion is what he does. I love the words that he uses. He says, he was in raging fury. He was so well known by the authorities and the chief priests that he was given specific and special authority to persecute. 
For us, we're probably not going to be able to say to someone, oh, I know exactly where you're at. I tried to kill Christians. But you might be able to say to them, I know exactly what you're saying. That doubt makes sense to me. I see why this is a difficult thing. If you are going to call someone to a costly discipleship, then you ought to empathize with the fact that you are calling them to costly and weighty matters. If God exists, it changes everything. Because Jesus is who he said he was, it changes everything. And we cannot preach these things to people and then just expect that they're not going to wrestle with them. We need to empathize with where people are at. Paul is basically saying to them, I know why you're, so, you're guarding zealously the faith of the, of the temple and the sacrificial system. I know why I was there. He might say to them, I know why you care about truth so much that you think I should be put to death. I was there. I love truth. You might say to someone, I know why you're so adamantly opposed to this. You want human beings to flourish. You want society to look as beautiful as it could possibly be. So do I. I want the same thing. I'm going to empathize with you. Without going too far down a political road, you might even be able to say to someone, you know what, I want the world to be stewarded well. I, I, want, it, I want it to be renewed. I really do. I am the most tree-hugging man the world has ever produced. I want every tree to be made brand new. That's what I want. One day I want everything new. You might be able to empathize with people and what they're longing for. This is more difficult than just yelling at a brick wall. You need to listen and understand where people are coming from, and Paul has no problem empathizing. Let's read the rest of this portion of his story because it's so significant and it's important in the way that Paul communicates it. Verse 12, in this connection, so he says, I'm in that spot. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have, sent, see, which you have seen me, in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, but to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I'll stop there just for a moment. I think one of the things that Paul appeals to in this particular section of the story is he appeals to duty. Duty is a noble thing. He declares to them, I was appointed for a task. And especially teach, to speaking to someone like a king, like Agrippa, he basically says to him in a very winsome way, I am following orders. I'm following orders. This section is instructive. It tells us exactly what Paul believed and received as his commission, what it was. He was sent to open eyes. You know why one of the, re you know, one of the reasons that our message is offensive to people? Because it necessitates us calling them blind. You are blind, Agrippa. Festus, you are blind. That's what Paul is saying. It's not a minor thing. He says, I'm calling to proclaim this message so that they might receive forgiveness of sins. You're a sinner. You need forgiveness. You can't stand before God in your present state. You are sullied by sin. 
You are undone. That's the message that we have to proclaim. But then gloriously, Jesus so carefully and so precisely says that the hope is that we would receive a place among those who are sanctified, made right, made perfect, made pure. Not by effort, not by merit, but by faith in him. I think Paul is basically both defending and announcing something. He's defending what he's done by calling out to nobility. You know there's something deep down ingrained in all of us that we want to live for something? You want to not just have a job, but a calling. Not just vocation, but advocation. You're advocating for something. I think everyone understands that. And in a sense, in this defense, Paul is bringing them into his world and saying, I'm not just doing this because I like the, I like the trial and the riots and the rumors. I'm not a glutton for punishment, right? I have a sense of calling. And I think that that is appealing to the people who are listening. In the midst of his story as defense, he has told them his experience by showing how he's a part of their context, right? He has empathized with where they're at and their doubts and in their, in their zeal. He's appealing to this idea that they've been created for something. He's been appointed to something and he's walking in what he's been created to be. And that might push the question forward into someone, who are you and what are you created to do? Who are you created to be? And the last thing that he does in this last section is he appeals to the conscience. We said last week the conscience is a gift to be stewarded. One of the reasons the conscience is such a gift is because it works with you. Do you know that the conscience of every single human being on the face of this earth preaches the gospel while you preach the gospel? It cries out to them. There is truth. There is right. There is wrong. God exists. We're accountable, responsible. This is verse 24 of Acts chapter 26. It's the last section as we wrap up. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, speaking to the conscience. The king knows about these things, And to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul appeals directly to the conscience. God has placed eternity in the hearts of all mankind. He's placed his image on all of us. And in speaking the gospel, in getting a hearing, one of the things that we can do is appeal to people's conscience. Do you not believe that we were made for something more? Do you not see that all of creation is calling forth the glory of God? Do you not understand and sense guilt when you do something wrong? Do you not see that every good story the world has ever known has longed for a happy ending, for resolution? To call people directly, to appeal to their understanding of right and wrong, to their nature, to the story that their nature is telling them. And then finally, I think we can appeal to people's desire for a better story. Every single person in the telling of the gospel, one of the best things that I've ever seen in in, in a defense or in an argument. A guy started a book about a controversial topic that I wasn't quite on board with. He started the book basically by saying this. I know you might be reading this book knowing this is not true, but just for a moment, couldn't we just wish together that it were true? Let's just, just for a moment, what if this were true? And in that moment, all my guard was placed down and I thought like, okay, I'm just going to wish for a while. What if this were true? And then, as you preach that story, as you describe what God has called you to do and who you could be, you, you need to believe that the Holy Spirit is going to call and awaken and open eyes because people have been designed for this story. J.R.L. Tolkien 
described one time why he used fairy tales, why he used stories to describe basically the gospel, this picture that there's something more. And in this unbelievably effusive and very, it's, it's intense, so you kind of have to follow it closely. He describes why stories can be so powerful to call someone to action. This is what he said. He said, the constellation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there's no true end to a fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things that fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist or fugitive. In its fairy tale or otherworldly setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to reoccur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe or sorrow of failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and in so far is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. This is the story that we have to tell. It's the story that we have to invite people into, and they're longing for it. They're longing for the world to be made right and for someone to come and to rescue and to save. I believe their conscience is speaking this to them, and we need to do everything we can to gain a hearing as well. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for the narrative sections of your word. Thank you for the the stories they tell.